You know, we like to do a giveaway every week at the City Life Church, and so we thought that uh, in celebration of the Lee family being here for the first time tonight, as he's walking down the aisle, because he just walked down an aisle not too long ago, so they were just married. How many days has it been? Two weeks tomorrow. Two weeks tomorrow. So there's a Starbucks gift card for each of you, because you got to keep going on those date nights, right? We want them to... To, to stay in love and be a bride and groom, come on, 20 years from now, 20 years from now. And so we're excited that, that, uh, that they're going to be a part of this church, and uh, we're, just, we're excited about uh, just the plans and the purposes that God has for your, your life together now. Come on, a destiny that's going to be shared, destiny that's going to be shared. And where's David and Hannah? Because they are right there. Come on. The bachelor and bachelorette parties were those last night? And they are here at church. Come on, let that be a testimony to all of you here the next time you want to miss, right? Come on. So there, we're getting to step into that moment of their marriage soon. So you have to remind me, we're going to have to give them a giveaway the week that they're back. So, or if not, they will, they will feel slighted. They will feel slighted. So I hope that you've enjoyed this series that we've been in, that it has been as impactful to you as it has me personally. Um, our, our life group's wrapped up this week, but uh, if you did not have the opportunity to participate in a life group, you still need to get this book and read it. David Platt's Radical Together, especially if you think that you're going to be tracking with us because this book has really spoken some deep things into our heart, and this is going to help lay a foundation for just the way that we're going to run after God in 2012 together as a congregation. And uh, so you're going to want to pick that book up. You're going to want to read it, and it's going to help you understand some of the emphasis that we're going to pick up and some focuses that we're going to be driving home uh, in, in the year that's waiting for us. And so tonight we're wrapping up that, this, this series tonight. We've been picking a different word every week that spells radical for us as a congregation, as devoted followers of Christ. And tonight we're going to talk about a radical choice, C-H-O-I-C-E. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But I also want to just, just a commercial for next week. If you're in town, come on, you want to come, bring family that's with you. Don Lada, who is a missionary in Peru, we sent our first missions team out this past year to Peru to work with Don and Christy Latta, and he's going to be preaching next week and talking about the importance of missions, what they do in Peru, and he's going to be talking a little bit about, too, about even when you can't go, you're still a part. Does that make sense? We're all a part of missions, whether we're the sender or we're the one being sent. And, uh, and then in Williamsburg, we're excited to let you know that our very own Hal and Denise Abner, raise your hand, they're going to be sharing at the Williamsburg campus. They both grew up on the mission field in Papua New Guinea. And, uh, and so they're going to be sharing about their experience and that same idea that whether you're going or sending, you're a part of reaching the world. So if you've been looking for a reason to come visit the newly launched Williamsburg campus. Come on, you want to come next weekend because it's going to be good that Hal and Denise are going to be sharing out of their life story, and so we're excited about that. And then in December, we're going to launch into our Christmas series that's called Near, N-E-A-R, Near, and we're going to be spending a month talking about this idea of, of where the Bible refers to Christ as Emmanuel, God with us. And that there is a place that you can discover with the creator of the universe where you wake up every day knowing him as your best and closest friend. He doesn't want to just be near to you by way of a belief. He wants to be near to you by a matter of the heart. 
And we're going to be spending a month in that together. And so you could be praying about that series because a lot of people go through life believing in who God is, but they've yet to step into a near moment with him. And we're believing that some people are going to have that moment coming up in, in December. So, all right, let's, you ready for tonight? So tonight, come on, who's clapping? I like that. Nice, nice, nice. I think tonight is probably going to be the most sobering message that I've ever preached in my life. And so I want to share that with you tonight because we like to have fun at the City Life Church. If you've been tracking with us for any amount of time, we like to laugh. We like to have a good time. And that's born out of a conviction that we have from Psalm 27:13 that says, I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's a hallmark verse for us as a church. But another verse that we have a deep conviction about is Matthew 4.4, 4, where Jesus said that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And every word is a big phrase for us at the City Life Church, because if God put it, come on, in the Bible, then we need to be willing to put it in play out here. If he, if he put it in there, we've got to put it in play out here. And we want to be a church that teaches all of Scripture, we want to be a church that brings the full message of the gospel. We want to be a church that does not shy away from things that people in the world might say are controversial. Just a couple of weeks ago, right, how many people took the, the, uh, the IET test, the Implicit Association test? Shoot your hand up if you, if you took that, right? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about a radical unity. We talked about how racism can be divisive in the church. We talked about how politics can be divisive in the church. We, we don't talk about those things because they're prevalent problems in our church. We talk about those things so they'll never have the occasion to be a prevalent problem in our church. You with me? And so we want to take on controversial topics. We want to take on messages that sometimes challenge us more than what we would like to be challenged. We want to take on messages that, that have a sobering effect on our lives. And so when we talk about a radical choice, it's born out of this belief that if you look at this book with any measure of authenticity, or should we say if you let this book look into you, with any measure of authenticity, you cannot escape this truth. Of all the decisions in this life, of all the choices, there is nothing more pressing than where we will spend eternity. Paradise or perdition, eternal bliss, or forever in agony. It is a truth in scripture that Jesus kept coming back to in his ministry. And we're gonna look at two specific texts together tonight that kind of are going to lay a foundation for us. We're going to look at the four words that the Bible uses to reference the idea of hell, the place of hell, the reality of hell that Jesus teaches about. We're going to spend time looking at three of them together. And then the fourth one, for sake of time, those are on the notes. And as you know, that they're on the website, so you can download those and do a study on your own. It's designed to help you do that. And then throughout the message, I just want to share a little bit about my own story. I'm, I'll be 45 in March. I made a vow devotion to Christ in December of 1990 when I was 23, and the revelation of the reality of a place called hell had a profound impact on me in my early 20s that helped lead me to a place of making a vow of devotion to Christ, and so I'm going to be sharing a little bit of that as we go. Father, so we just come to a moment of pause before we launch into your word and discover some of the truths therein. And we say, oh God, let it be that we would just have an open heart to everything, Jesus, that you taught while you walked upon this earth. 
that we want to have ears that hear everything that you want to say to us, even when it challenges us beyond what we're prepared to hear, even when it forces us to be confronted with a reality that we're not ready to embrace, even now in our hearts, make us ready to receive from you all that you have to give. And if any of us are here tonight, Father, and we have yet to take a stand in this life to make a vow of devotion to Jesus Christ, that they came in, Father, without you, that they can leave with you, that tonight's going to be a day that they look back to and say, that was the day of my birthday there in November in 2011 at the City Life Church, that I wasn't sure what was waiting for me when I breathed my last, but now I know. Let that be somebody's story tonight. And in Jesus' name, and everybody said together, Amen. All right, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew. There's a couple of texts that we're going to read, and then we're going we're to launch into it tonight together. So this is Matthew 13, beginning in verse 37, down to verse 43. It says, he replied, this is him explaining a parable that he taught, and he, just, he, gets, really, he gets really plain here, really direct. It says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed. These are the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is in the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those who are guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. You see the contrast there. And anyone who has an ear should listen. All right, let's jump over to Luke. I want to read this one to you, and then we're going to dive in. Luke 16, I have a question mark here because there's a lot of questions about whether or not this is a parable or whether or not it's a true story, and we're not really going to know until we get to heaven and God gives us the answer, but I'm of the stream that believes it's not a parable, that it is a true story that Jesus witnessed himself because in every other parable that Jesus teaches, he never names anyone in the parable. Every other parable is a man or a woman or a boy or a Samaritan, but it, it, it's, they're never given a name. And right here, he names a person in the story, which I believe was Jesus saying to us that this is not a parable. This is something that I witnessed, and he wants us to understand the reality of hell. Verse 19, it says, there was a rich man who would dress in purple. Not there's anything wrong with purple, just for the record. And fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was left at his gate, and he longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his, wound, lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. 
Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot and neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Verse 30, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Verse 31, but he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone even rises from the dead. So let's look at the four words. The Bible gives us four words that translate to hell. Sometimes it's the actual word that's used and sometimes it's translated into our English concept, the word hell. The first one is this, Hades, which is often pronounced Hades. You find in the New Testament 12 times, it literally translates the abode of death. Again, all these notes are on the website. And I believe this is just a personal belief, but as you can do a word study and you read those 12 verses, I think what you'll find too, that there's an emphasis on a kingdom. There's an emphasis on a realm whenever that particular word is used. And we're going to look at a few of those verses tonight because they each in a unique way, I believe, teaches us something about hell. The next one is Gehenna that's often pronounced Gehenna. We find that in the New Testament 10 times. It means the place of punishment. It's an emphasis on suffering. Now, this is an important word in the New Testament because in Jesus' day, when he said the word geena, that that would have struck a chord with the people that he was talking to, to because there was a dump outside. It was, it was in a valley. It was just south of Jerusalem. And that's what this word comes from, geena. And it was the place where they would burn their waste as a city. So all the waste, all the trash that would be gathered up out of the city would be taken to this place and dead animals would be thrown there. So there was a constant flame that was continually burning in this valley, in this waste dump. You can imagine what it would have smelled like. You could, could have imagined the destruction. You could have imagined the heat that was coming from that place. It was a place that was continually being consumed by a fire. It was a real geographic place. And so oftentimes when Jesus is teaching about hell, he doesn't use the word hades. He goes to the word geena because he wants people to understand the reality of what he's talking about. So when he said, and those of you could be cast into the outer darkness, into Gehenna, it would give people great pause because they've seen this place and they understood that Jesus was saying to them, there is a place like this waiting for some who after they die, if they've rejected God, that this is the place where they will spend forever. Come on, it's straight talk about hell tonight. It's a sobering reality that's given to us in Scripture. The third one is Tartarus. It's in the New Testament. It's only one time. It's only used one time. It's in 2 Peter. It means place of punishment. It's also an emphasis on suffering. I love that Peter reached for this word because it's a reminder to us of the importance as a church that we can be culturally relevant while still being doctrinally pure. That we have to be true to our beliefs, we have to be true to our doctrine, but we have to be willing to articulate and communicate the message we have in a way to the world that we live in so that they can understand it. So instead of Peter reaching to his Jewish roots, which is the next word that we see, and grab the word Sheol, instead of using the word Hades or, or Geena, he turns to this word, Tataros, which is, has, comes out of Greek mythology, and it is the place, according to Greek beliefs, that the most wicked of the dead would be sent to to suffer for their evil deeds. So Peter here is writing this letter, 
And he's saying, what can I do to help them to understand the reality of this place that I'm talking about? So he pulls a word out of their own language to articulate the truth that he himself learned from Christ. All right, here's the last one. We're not going to spend time on this one, obviously, because it's used 66 times. It's the Hebrew word. The other three are Greek. This is the one. Ever in the Old Testament, you find the word hell. It's Sheol. Every now and again, they'll use the word Abaddon, but for the majority of the time, it's Sheol. And again, all the explanation for this is in the notes. It means grave or unseen, and it's an emphasis on both realm and suffering. So I want to take just a few minutes, and I want to look at each one because I believe that each word teaches us something about the reality of hell that you and I need to understand. So the hell of Gehenna, Luke 12, 5, it says, but I tell you whom to fear fear God who has the power to kill you and then to throw you into and this is in the Greek here Gehenna throw you into hell yes he's the one to fear Hebrews 9 27 says it's for people to to be destined to die once and then to face judgment it's important that we understand hey, we all know that one day we're going to die right that's not up for debate we all know that one day we're going to breathe our last. And Jesus gave so much of his time and attention when he walked upon this earth, when he came from heaven and lived on this earth for 33 years, three of those in his ministry, the last three years of his life, he wanted us to understand that when we die, that we will stand before God and give an account for our lives. Now, I used to use the phrase all the time that God doesn't send anyone to hell, we send ourselves to hell. I've stopped using that. Because really, it is ultimately God's choice. And we have to be careful that we don't try to soften the truth of the scriptures. God is the sovereign creator of the universe. And when we stand before him and give an account for our lives, he's either going to send us to paradise with him forever, or we're going to be condemned to an eternity of suffering and perdition. Now, that's based on a choice that we make, which we're going to get to tonight, but make no mistake that hell is a judgment, and it's one that God gives to people. All right, the next one. Mark 9, 43, it says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell, which means never dulling without two hands. This idea that hell is a place of unfathomable suffering, it's, it's, it's important that we grasp that, that, that it's not a place where you just get used to the suffering. Scripture is clear to tell us that the suffering is so intense that the intensity of that suffering will be felt by those who are there for all eternity. You know, if, if you've been outside in the cold, at some point you acclimate. You with me? You get, you get used to it. I worked in, a, in an ice plant for two summers while I was in college. It was below zero with the wind chill. And right when I first started working there, I thought I was going to freeze to death, right? But by the end of the summer, your body gets acclimated to the condition that you're a part of. The Bible works very hard to tell us that in our humanity, the eternal part of who we are, we do not have the capacity to get acclimated to the kind of suffering that hell gives to people who are condemned there. All right, number three, we're going to look at four at this and four in the next one. Discriminating behavior. What sorrows await you hypocrites? For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell, Gehenna, than you yourselves are. It's important that we, that we remember that as we're reading the Bible, there should be something that's happening. There should be self-reflection. 
Remember in the book of James, it talks about the Bible's like looking into a mirror and we shouldn't forget what we see when we walk away. When we're reading the Bible, we'll come across lists. And I remember when I was in this place, when I was 23, of, of, of wrestling with this decision, am I going to become a devoted follower of Christ? And I picked up the Bible and I was reading it for the first time. I would begin to read these lists and it would talk about greed and lust and gluttony and being a pleasure seeker, right? And it's the list that's describing my life, but I know that I'm being described on the wrong list. You with me? I see that there's a list, I see that it's describing me, but I have this eerie feeling that that's not the description that's supposed to be of me. Because when you would get to the end of that list, oftentimes it would say, and these people will suffer forever, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was a sober reminder to me that the concept of hell, the reality of hell is given to us to help us to be discriminating about our behavior in this life. This idea of being a child of hell, we have got to be willing to look into our lives and say, are the things that I pursue, is the description of my life, if I'm willing to put an honest one down on a piece of paper, does it describe a person who is a child of God or does it describe a person who's a child of hell? And if it's the latter of those two, there should be something inside of us that begins to say, I can't stay the way that I am and not expect a consequence to be brought to me. That's so why Jesus said so often, he that has an ear, let him hear, because he wants us to know what waits for us. He doesn't want us to walk around in ignorance. He wants us to have the facts so that we can make the right decisions, so that we can have the place of paradise that he wants us to have. James 3, 6, the hell of Gehenna, reaching into this world. The tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire. And listen to the statement that James says. For it is set on fire by hell itself. The Bible teaches us that the entities in hell have the ability to reach into this world and to bring temptation. We see it in the Garden of Eden with Lucifer, with Adam and Eve. That the entities of hell have the ability to reach into this world to bring oppression. The entities of hell have the ability to reach into this world and to confront you and I. Now, I'm not condoning that you're looking for a demon behind every corner. I'm not talking about living life that way. We've all been around people like that. They're a little bit odd, right? That's out of balance. But by the same token, we have to be honest about what God put in this book. And what's in this book tells us that hell's a real place that's filled with real evil, and that evil has the power to reach into this world. I had a couple of encounters when, when, when I was in that place of wrestling with my decision about becoming a devoted follower of Christ. It was in 1990. Again, I was 23 years old, and there were two, three specific instances, two just before I made that decision in December and one just after where I was awoke, awakened into the middle of the night. I had a, an overwhelming sense that there was a presence in my room where I was sleeping. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. Only three times in my life that I would say that I've experienced the feeling of terror, that feeling. Now, I know that there's all kinds of studies that talks about sleep terror. I know that there's all kinds of studies that talks about a, a paralysis that you can wake up into. I believe the science of all of that. But it's the only three times that I've ever experienced that. Only three times in my whole entire life. That's just a little bit too coincidental for me. And so I believe, I don't think it was the devil himself because I don't think I'm that important, Right? But I think that they were entities from hell that were sent there to intimidate me because my destiny was hanging in the balance. It's real stuff in this book. 
Real experiences that you and I can have. And the first two times, it was before I had made a decision to follow Christ. And, and I had, I had no, no sense of authority over what was happening in my life. I was at that mercy. And eventually, I drifted back to sleep. But those experiences have stayed with me, those two. And then after I made a decision in 1990 to become a devoted follower of Christ, I was at my parents' house. I was taking a nap one afternoon. And I was awoken in the middle of that same experience as the other three. Had an overwhelming sense that there was a, an evil presence in my room. I couldn't move and I couldn't talk. But come on, it was a different ball game this time. So the Bible says that greater is he who's within us than he that's in the world. So in that place, laying in my bed, a little bit frightened, but also some courage that began to build in my heart and in my mind, I just began to say, in Jesus' name, I don't belong to you anymore. I lived a life of absolute hedonism. I had given my life to... I was a child of hell. No, no, no bones about it. I, I belonged to that realm and to that world, but not anymore. And all of a sudden in that moment where I began to say Jesus' name over and over, anybody ever been parasailing in here? I went parasailing when I was at youth camp in high school. And there's a moment where that sail lifts with air and you're, you're hoisted up into the air. It's an incredible feeling and you begin to soar through the air. I had that feeling. I had that literal sensation that something inside of me was lifted out of that room and I was being carried forward. And what I saw in my mind's eye were what seemed like lines on a street that just kept moving faster and faster. The Bible talks about being translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And I believe that something supernatural happened to me on that day. And I've never had an experience like that for the rest of my life. Why is that? Because Jesus lives inside of me as he does in some of you. And there has to be a moment that we can look to in our lives. And those kinds of experiences might not ever happen to you, but I'm, I guarantee you there are some people in this room you've had experiences just like that. Maybe you didn't even know what was happening to you. Maybe some of those things are happening to you now because you've never made a decision to become a Christ follower, and you can make that decision tonight, and when it happens to you again, you're going to know what to do. Come on, and you can be free. Hell has the power to reach into this world. All right, let's look at the next one. The hell of Hades, the hell of Hades, or Hades. I want to look at four of these and what it teaches us. Matthew 16, 18, it's an evil force against God. This verse says, now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell, of Hades, will not conquer it. Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, if you are not with me, you are against me. Now, I remember reading that early on in my life as a devoted follower of Christ and being struck by the reality that there is nothing, no truth to neutrality when it comes to spirituality. There was no neutrality. I was living my life believing that I was just going to not be a part of this battle between good and evil. I was just going to be over here. I was a, I was a bystander. Jesus makes it very clear. He says, you're either with me, and if you're not with me, then you're against me. And I remember having this revelation that I had been duped and fallen prey to deception and that through my life and the way that I was living, I was actually advancing the devil's agenda in the world. That's a sobering thing to embrace. It's a sobering thing to realize that because I was rejecting God, it didn't make me neutral, it made me his enemy. It didn't make me neutral. It meant that because of the way that I was living and the impact that I was having on other people, the selfishness of my heart, that I was literally advancing an evil agenda in this world 
against the one who created it. It's an evil force that's working against God. All right, number two here, it's subject to God's authority. The hell of Hades. I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green and its rider was named Death and his companion was the grave, which in the Greek is Hades. It says, these two were given authority. We're going to come back to this idea of the devil has deceived himself. Over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword. This is talking about things that are going to come in the, in the end times. We need to realize that just because hell is a real force at work in this world, it's still subject to the authority of God. At no point is God going, oh no, what are we going to do? The devil is the father of lies. He's such a person of deception that he's deceived himself into believing that he can win in the end, even though he knows he's not. He's already deceived himself. God sits confidently upon his throne, and anything that hell is able to do in this world is only done because God allows it. At any time, his sovereign authority can step in and bring it to an end, which is what he knows at the end of all things. So I was riding down Work Boulevard on Friday and I'm behind this car and there's a young lady driving and all of a sudden I noticed there's smoke pouring out from underneath the car. I recognize the smell, it's overheating, the smell of the, the antifreeze, and, and so I kind of go around her because I know that she's probably going to have to pull over, and I notice that the people in front of her, I think, are with her. It's another, it's, there was only one girl in the car that was smoking, and there was a whole bunch of girls in the other car, and they were all turned around having these horrible looks on their face, right? And they were signaling to her to, to pull over just in case she didn't see it. And so then I, right, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I got somewhere to be, but I should stop and help, right, because I'm a nice person, and because I'm a nice person that I say that. So they pull over, right? I pull over. The girl with the car that's smoking, though, she just hops out of the car, leaves it in the middle of the street, and she's standing on the side of the street going like this. Right? Just standing there, waving her hands around, right? Because she doesn't know what to do. So I pull over and I walk up to her, right? Because I'm thinking, a man has come onto the scene, right? I cannot cook, but I know about the underside of the hood of a car. I have a moment of self-worth. So I walk up, and I, was just, I stood next to her. And I said, uh, I don't think your car's on fire, so why don't you get back into the car, pop the hood, and we'll look at it just to make sure. And she's looking at me like, yeah, maybe you can get in the car, pop the hood. So she did, and we looked, and sure enough, it was just overheating. There was antifreeze pouring all over the place. And so I said, why don't you pull your car into this parking lot, and, you can call a tow truck and, you know, you, you, you'll be okay. And so that picture of that girl standing on the side of the road, flapping her hands around, that is not God. There is no point in the story that's playing out in the universe where he jumps out of the car because he does not know what to do. He is a person of authority. And even at the most evil moments in history, he has always been in control. He's always been in control. Hell is subject to the authority of God. All right, number three, the hell of Hades, Luke 16, 23 to 24, going back to this true story. That it's a place of consciousness. And his soul went into the place of the dead, and there in torment he saw Abraham have some pity, send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. We do not believe in annihilationism. 
that's a, a stream of theology that says those who aren't going to enter into heaven, they're just going to cease to exist. But there are profound texts in the Bible that tells us and teaches us that the, the horror of hell is a place of a conscious existence. It's a place of a conscious existence, a place of consciousness. All right, number four, Revelation 14, 11, hell is a place of a permanent eternity. Listen to these words. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night. When you're thinking about hell, when you're thinking about the reality of hell, and maybe you're a person that's here tonight and you've always held God at arm's length, Maybe part of it is because you bought into a lie that's been whispered in your ear. Maybe you'll have to put some time in in that place of suffering, but at some point, God's going to let you out. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches that. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that. If anything, the Bible only ever tells us the contrary. It is a place of eternal existence. It is forever and ever and ever. It is difficult for us in our humanity to grasp the concept for forever because we're born into a temporary world and everything about this world is so darned temporary. You buy an iPhone today in six months, it's, right, something new and better comes out. The car you drive off, something new and better. The house you move into, something new. The pants that you buy that are skinnier now in six months, they're gonna be back to baggy then, right? No matter how hard you try, everything's just changing. We live in a temporary world, so it's difficult for us to grasp this idea of permanence. That's why Jesus says, he that has an ear, let him hear. Listen to the reality of the other world, the other realm that's eternal. There's so much of this life that's temporary, but everything about that existence is forever. It's forever. All right, here's the other one. The hell of Tartarus, the hell of Tartarus. It's only used one time in the Bible. Second Peter 2, 4. It says, for God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell. This is where he picks that word. In gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. Peter wants the people that are reading that letter to understand. It's important that we understand it tonight that one day you and I are going to stand before God and give an account for our lives. I can't tell you the impact that that had on me as I began to read these words. When I was 23 years old, I needed to embrace the truth of God's word, that I was going to be responsible for my life. I was going to be responsible for the life that I lived. That there were moments right in growing up where I talked my parents out of punishing me. One of us, Vanessa or I, I'm not going to tell you which one, Vanessa, was in traffic court this week. Right? You go to traffic court because you hope that you're going to be able to talk the judge out of the consequences that we rightly deserve because we're driving too fast where we're not. Right? You're with me? We think, we, and sometimes we're able to. We catch them on a good day, and they, they magically reduce the ticket. We're not going to be able to talk God out of the consequences that we've deserved. If you're thinking, when I get there, I'm, I'm just going to talk my way in. Come on, Hebrews chapter 4. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Maybe you're thinking humanity's crowded and I'm flying under the radar. You're not flying under the radar. 
every thought, every word, everything that you've done and everything that you've not done that you should have done, he's keeping track. Hopefully for you, he's keeping track so that he can experience the joy of extending forgiveness. It's great that he keeps a list because when we step into that moment of making a vow of devotion to Jesus Christ, as we talked about last week, there's a forgetful side to God and he just casts it all away. It's great in Hebrews 9 and 10, it talks about having a clean conscience. When I was 23 years old and I made a decision to make a vow of devotion to Jesus Christ, I cannot tell you how wonderful it was to fall asleep one night to know that my conscience was clear. Not that my past had changed, but now that I knew I had been forgiven for those things because Jesus Christ had died so that I could be forgiven for those things, and even though I didn't deserve it, I had now become an, an heir to the kingdom of God, to be with him in paradise forever and ever. We're going to ask the worship team to come back up. I want you to remember a couple of things. Now I'm going to explain what we're going to do for the remainder of the service tonight. If you're you're wrestling with the reality of what we're talking about tonight, you need to remember Romans 2.2. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. God is incapable of injustice. Judges in this world we know make mistakes because they're human. Every decision that God makes is just. The arrogance of our humanity that we sometimes stand in this life as if we're boycotting God because we don't think he's being fair. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. He gets to do what he wants to do. And because he is perfect love, everything that he does is right, even if we don't understand it. It is hard for us to understand why a gracious God would create such a place that he would send to people for all eternity. And I just believe that it's beyond the human mind to comprehend. It's our responsibility, however, to trust who he is. And if it's something that he's chosen to do, then there's a reason for it. And maybe when we get to heaven, he's going to help explain that. But aren't you grateful that he didn't keep it a secret, that he puts it all out in the open so that we understand exactly what we're headed towards on the day we give an account for our lives? And this is the other one that's so important to me. In Luke 12, 5 and 8 and 9, listen to what it says. It says, fear God who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. We read that already, but listen to what it continues to say. I tell you the truth. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. But anyone who denies me here on this earth will be denied before God's angels. If you've noticed that Hopefully you've been having an experience with the creative side of these slides tonight that every slide's been a picture of somebody raising a hand because that's just as simple as it is. Right here in Luke chapter 12, it's just not any more complicated than that. Jesus says, if you're willing to raise your hand, if you're willing to raise your hand and receive my grace and from that moment forward, live up to the truth that you know, the best that you can, As one of my disciples, your eternity is changed forever. It's amazing, isn't it? Something so complicated, something so hard to understand, something so horrific. When we wrestle with the truth of Scripture, Jesus said, 
if you would just be willing to raise your hand and walk away from that place with a sincere heart to follow after me, heaven is promised to you. Bow your heads with me as we move into a place of prayer tonight. I just want you to keep your heads bowed tonight. So I just want to invite you to step into a moment of honesty. It's hard to be honest, isn't it? It's hard to be authentic. We're taught to hide our emotions. We're, we're taught to not be real because people might judge us. But in moments like this, you've got to be willing to be real. God sees into your heart already. He sees into your heart already. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else right now except this one thing. I'm not going to try to trick you into 14 different things. Just, I'm just going to ask you to do this one thing. If you're here tonight and you're here in this sermon and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, Fred, I'm, I'm not sure what waits for me when I die because I can't find a place in my life where I've made a vow of devotion to Christ. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand just in the privacy of this moment. I'm just going to ask you to slip it up. Just keep it up for a minute. Just keep it up. We're just willing to step into this moment of authenticity. Come on. It's good. Don't be shy. There's some hands up in here tonight. Just keep it up. I want you to keep it up while we pray. Father, I pray for these people that have their hands up tonight. That before this service is over, they're going to step into a place of confession. That before this service is over, they're going to, they're going to allow themselves to take another step. That they're going to allow themselves to not just confess that they're not sh sure what waits for them, but they're going to be willing to say, Jesus, I want the forgiveness that you offer. I want the life that you can teach me to live so that I can have the heaven that's to come, but so that I can also have the heaven that you give on earth. So Father, let it be that tonight, that those that have the courage to step into that moment, that they're gonna have the courage to step into some more moments that are to come. Stand with me. Stand with me as we worship. We're gonna do a few things over these next 25 minutes.